Uh, if you've got a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 15, which is a pretty big leap. I don't know that I've made that, that large of a leap in Scripture before. But as I told you uh, uh, last week, that we're going to look at really the highlights of the book 1 Samuel and, and 2 Samuel. And, and a lot of it has to do with the, the parallels of this book uh, to our circumstance today. Now, I want to be clear in saying this. Uh, when we read the Old Testament, reading how God identifies himself through a particular people group through Israel— and I'm not trying to make the equation of America is the second coming of Israel, okay? I don't want to go down that road at all. I don't think that that's a healthy road to walk down. But I do want to draw some similarities to the circumstance related to the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel as it relates to us where we are today. And so when we dive into this message, this section of Scripture, what I want us to, to, to approach this as is understanding uh, what here is going on. And, and we're going to learn from the failures of, of an individual named Saul who becomes king of Israel and make some application to our lives so we don't end up following that. That same pattern. We're going to look at a particular story as it relates to King Saul, and I think this narrative story is here uh, related to the king, not to say, okay, now here's how you apply this politically to where you are as a people, but rather I think the narrative is in this passage of scripture so that we can personally connect to God in a way different than what Saul did, in a way that's really obedient. And so what is happening in 1 Samuel chapter 15? Well, let me remind us. If you were with us last week, we talked a little bit about the book of Judges. If you've ever read Judges, the book of Judges is about Judges. And when you hear the word Judges, don't think in terms of, of an American judge like today. Uh, when Judges were raised up in Israel, they're usually raised up in regions. These might not have been the only Judges in Israel, but it's the one that scriptures record for us. And they're raised up in particular regions, really among individual clans in Israel, to help them uh, thwart against attack that are happening. So God would raise up a judge and he would work as a deliverer for God's people who are facing persecution uh, from a people group around them for some reason. And, and, and they, were, they were really facing it because of disobedience to God. They get into this promised land, they walk in as one people and they separate as clans and they really live in separate clan identities. It's under the book of Samuel that you find that, that God unifies his people through a king named David. So in the book of Judges, Israel is very divided. And, and these judges are raised up and they help Israel uh, to thwart off enemies around them. They walk in disobedience. God brings a judge and this judge or this, these, God brings, excuse me, a people group against Israel and Israel in that oppression turns back to God and they cry out to God. And so God raises up a judge and delivers them. By the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, Israel's enemies are no longer on the outside. Israel's enemies are on the inside. They're actually warring against one another. So when you read that book, you get to the end and it just gets depressing. It's like God's people sent to this promised land with all the hope in the world and they live in disobedience rather than follow after God. They're judged because of it. First, they're oppressed by outside people. Then they're oppressed by their own people. And the theme that is stated in the book of Judges a few times is that everyone does what's right in their own eyes. This idea of individuality, of declaration that I am God rather than God himself, and people choose to live life as if they were God. And so what happens in the book of Judges is that really Israel just starts to fall apart. And when you get to the book of Samuel, you see this last judge who's raised up who is Samuel. And we saw this last week that the story of, of Samuel, when, when God brings the kingdom of Israel together under one king who really becomes a picture of Jesus in, in many ways, when God does that, it starts on the back of a prayer of a godly woman named Hannah. And Hannah, in, in chapter one, she's, she's experiencing adversity in her own family and pressure from her own culture. And she chooses to rise up by bowing down, not to her culture, not to her family, not to people around her, but to the Lord. 
And she offers up a prayer to God and, and really offers up her child to the Lord, which is Samuel. And Samuel raises up as the last judge in Israel. And so when you read the book of Judges, you'll see that Eli is a priest during this time. And, and he's allowing his, his lineage to follow an, an ungodly line. And so God does away with Eli and raises up Samuel. And, and Samuel acts in chapter 7 as a judge over Israel. In chapter 8, Israel rejects him and they want a king for themselves. And when you get to chapter 9, chapter 10, they find that king in Saul. And what's ironic about Saul is when they go to anoint him, Samuel gathers all the people of Israel around. They're like, okay, let's have this big celebration of anointing our first king. And they can't even find Saul. He's hiding. They have to drag him out. Um, He was that kind of a character, just shy. And and they bring him out and they anoint him as king. And by the time you get to chapter 13, Saul is full of himself. He, He offers up a sacrifice in a way that God tells him not to do. And that's when you get to the famous verse in 1 Samuel chapter 13. We'll talk about this next week. But in verse 14, he says, um, God is seeking after a man after his own heart. He looks at Saul who walks in disobedience and says, Saul, this is not what God wants. God is now pursuing after a man who's seeking after his own heart. And then when you get to chapter 15, Saul does something again where he displays his own arrogance and chooses to walk in disobedience because Saul does what everyone did in the book of Judges. He makes life about him. He, he masks this in some of the way that he conducts himself, which we're going to look at, but he walks in disobedience because when you get to chapter 15, what God tells, what God tells Saul is, I want you to go to the Amalekites and I want you to destroy them. Now we're going to talk a little bit about why God would say that in a minute, but he, he says, I want you to go to the Amalekites and destroy them. I don't want you to take anything for yourself. Go and utterly destroy them and take nothing, nothing for yourself. And so Saul leads an army in to destroy and, and, and they win the battle, they win the victory, but Saul brings some stuff back. And then God comes to Samuel and says, Saul was disobedient. He did what I told him not to do. Um, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from him. And he tells Samuel to go tell Saul, go talk to Saul. And he gives Samuel a message. And in verse 10 of chapter 15, it says that Samuel's really tossing all night about this. And finally, in verse 12 is where we're going to pick up. I'm going to read verse 12 to to verse 19 so you can hear how this story unfolds where Samuel comes looking for Saul. So it says, Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel saying, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. I should just tell you guys, the word Carmel is pronounced Carmel. If you don't pronounce it that way, you pronounce it wrong, right? I'm I'm kidding. But um, he goes down to to Gilgal. And and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, When this is this, what, what is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? So remember, uh, Saul's told, Go fight in a battle and don't take anything. And then, and I can imagine off in the distance, Saul seems, sees Samuel coming down the hill. He's like, Ah, we've got some animals here we're not supposed to have. Cover them with blankets. We'll tell them we're, that they're, they're just tables, right? And, and Samuel shows up and is like, uh, Saul's like, we did what God said. And he's like, oh, really? What is this talking table over here that I hear, right? There's these sheep that are bleeding. What is, what is going on here? And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites in verse 15. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait. 
And let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, is it not true? Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the, sin the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of God? When you get to this, this, this section of scripture, like the narrative here is not about the Amalekites. The narrative in this story is to share about Saul and his disobedience. And I, I find that in our culture today, when we see the justice of God, sometimes we can't hear the narrative story and the significance of what this narrative is about because we've got something else to deal with, right? And that is the destruction of the Amalekites. And I, I want to talk about this just for a minute to, so we can look past that to the point of what this whole passage is. But I know in our, in our um, middle class, suburban areas of life, when we see the justice of God, sometimes we, we kick against that, right? So we'll, we'll say things like, you know, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I like the God of the New Testament. God is love, right? <laughs> and, and we forget sometimes in our life, in, in order for God to be that great loving God that we look for, there needs to be justice, like, you know, in our society where, where things may, may go a little bit easier than other places in this world, we like to emphasize the, the love of God and not the justice of God. But when you're living in a place in the world that's full of destruction and, and crime, or even you're being persecuted as a Christian, you find the justice of God as a very loving thing, right? But nonetheless, we look at passages like this and we're like, God, God's talking about the destruction of the Amalekites. Go down and utterly destroy them. How do you deal with that? And, and, and maybe you don't ask that question. Maybe you're okay with that. But, but if you're not asking that question, if you talk about the Lord with anyone else, especially to an unbeliever, they're going to look at a passage like this and say, how can you love a God like this? Right? So what do you do with this? I think we've got to answer the, that question to be able to deal with the significance of Saul. But why would God order uh, the, this destruction of, of the Amalekites? Well, when you look at the significance of Scripture, and I, I, I put this in your, in your notes. Um, if, you, if you got the sermon notes here in written form, I, I put a bunch of references here. If you download our app and you click on the sermon notes, you'll see a bunch of references here. You can look these up later. I don't have time to go through them all, but I'm, I'm going to give you a little highlight to what these are saying. Um, all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 to 16, God calls a man named Abraham and says, through him, I will bless all nations, Right? So God is a God who is very much in favor of all people groups. God created them all in his image. God thinks life is important. There, there, is, there is no person that is born that is an accident, right? God, God foresees all of it. God permits all of it. God created everyone in his image. It is sacred, right? To, to, to hurt someone and to kill someone, to do anything violent against a person, it, it, can, it can harm another individual. It can harm a people uh, by harming someone else or a family by harming someone else. But it's always a violation against God first because God created everyone in his image, which is why I will say as a church, look, if you want to love God, the way that you love God is by loving others because God made people in his image and he wants you to reflect his glory to people. And first John four twenty says that if we say that we love God and do not love other people, the love of God is not in us. But here you have in this passage of scripture, while God tells Abraham, he wants to bless all nations through him, uh, that God is now ordering the destruction of the Amalekites. Well, in that same reference of Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 to 16, God tells Abraham, he's given him, he's in this land, the promised land, and God says, look, I'm going to send you away for 400 years, and I'm actually going to bring you back. 
And, and he says, the reason I'm doing that is because uh, the, the sins of the people in this land ha- hasn't reached its height yet. And what he's saying is, look, there is a people in this promised land that are walking in direct opposition to God in a very negative way. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 31 says that they're doing several abominable things, one of which they're sacrificing their children by burning them alive to false gods. And so God is, for hundreds of years, according to Genesis 15, is going to be patient with that. And finally, God's going to say enough. And he brings, he brings Israel into this land. And in Deuteronomy chapter, uh, ch- chapter 7, uh, it, 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 one of the interesting things that happens here in verse 2 and 3, when God brings them into this land, um, Deuteronomy 7 verses 2 and 3, it says, I want you to go in and destroy. He's talking about de- defeating people in this promised land. Utterly destroy them. And then in verse 3, an interesting thing says, he talks about not intermarrying with them which seems kind of contradictory, right? He's like in, in chapter seven, verse two, go in and utterly destroy them. And oh yeah, don't intermarry with them. If God's talking about going in and utterly destroying a people, but then talking about not marrying within them, how can that be? Why would they even worry about marriage if, if they're going to utterly destroy them, these people, wipe them off the face of the earth, right? Uh, what, what I think is important when we read this in the Old Testament context is to recognize that this language is speaking in hyperbole, meaning uh, this week, the Jazz are going to take on the Denver Nuggets. And I hope we utterly destroy them. Right? I don't want the Jazz to literally kill the other team. But what we're saying is we want them to, to, to decimate that team, to, to move on, right? And I think the same thing's true in, in the Old Testament language. They speak in this warfare kind of language to intimidate the people around them. In fact, you'll see this in Saul and Samuel's interaction in this story where Saul is told by God, go destroy the Amalekites. And Saul comes back and says, I totally destroyed the Amalekites. I took their king and I took some animals, but I totally destroyed them. And, and, and then we find out right, not sh- shortly after this in the book of 1 Samuel that King David has to fight the Amalekites again. And we can look at them and be like, wait, wait, wait a minute. I thought Saul killed them all except for the king and except for their animals. And the truth is, well, this utter destruction is really war language. It's not, you're just decimating all of the people. What it's saying is he wants them to end their way of life because it's perverse against God. And so when God sends Israel into the promised land, it says in Deuteronomy 9.5 that he's not sending them because Israel is so great. The reason he's sending them is because the people are so bad. And God's using this not as a genocide, but as a judgment. God's working through people, especially the the tribe of Israel, to to highlight the goodness of who his God is. And and so he sends Israel into this land. And when you read the story of Israel, when they first go into the promised land, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, starting in verse 17, it says when they're going in as a people, the Amalekites are actually the first group to attack them. The Amalekites come from behind and attack them. And what that's saying and recognizing, look, the Amalekites attacked you from behind when you were on this journey from Egypt into the promised land. Um, when, a, when a group of people would travel, usually the back end of the group were considered the, the weak, the people that weren't able to keep up, the, the young and the elderly. And so these Amalekites, Amalekites come in and they just attack um, really the, the weak of the tribes of Israel. And Israel uh, didn't forget that, and the Lord didn't forget that. And when you study even beyond this, if you ever read the book of Esther, you'll know one of, the, one of the primary characters in the book of Esther is a man named Haman. And Haman tries to enact a law that would kill all of Israel, and Esther is raised up to rescue Israel. 
uh, for such a time as this is the famous phrase in the book of, uh, of Esther. But Haman came from the Amalekites. And so the Amalekites are a, wick, a wicked people and God is bringing the judgment. But it's important to recognize that when God brings this, this judgment, he, he's not talking about killing everyone. In fact, in, in Joshua chapter 10, if you want another reference, verses 34 to 43, when Joshua leads the conquest for Israel into the promised land, it says he conquers all the people and then he goes back to his land. Um, I think it says he actually destroys all the people. But by the time you get to Judges chapter 1, verses t- verse 10, it starts talking about all the people groups that are still in the promised land. So which is it? Did he utterly destroy them or is that simply warfare language? In fact, the book of Leviticus chapter 19 uh, gives Israel laws in how to treat other people groups that don't belong to the tribe of Israel. How to care for them, love them, welcome them. And so when you look at a story like this, I think it's important to recognize, look, this is, a, this is a time period where God is working through a particular people group to bring about his promised Messiah. Now, I don't think that that means we then do this again today because this is working through a, a certain group of people for a specific reason. And when we look at how God is communicating this language, it's important to recognize, well, God was patient for hundreds of years here. And these people are doing uh, despicable things. They're, they're killing children. And God finally says, enough is enough. Like when I think about, you know, our time period today, if we were to read about something like that, we would want to rise up and do something about it. And what's the problem when God does it? Right, you think about World War II and the atrocity of all that that was. And we think about, was it godly to stand up to preserve the life that was being executed in those chambers? I don't know anyone that would say no. I mean, it was a very godly thing to do, I think, honoring because it was honoring of life. And I think the same thing's true in a section like this, that God, God's ways are better than ours. And, and God has certainly been patient. And so this is what's happening in the life of the Amalekites. But the question in this, the real, real question in this passage, when you look at this starting in, in, in verse 19, is just to ask, but Saul, why did you disobey? If you know this is what God said for you to do and you're the king of Israel, why would you disobey? In fact, that is the exact question Samuel asks. If you look in verse 19, that's exactly what he says. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you do that? Saul? And then Saul gives his response. He's like, I obeyed. Sort of, kind of. Right? That's, that's, that's really what he says in verse 20. Look at this. He says, um, then Saul said to Samuel, so here's his response. Why, why did you disobey? Here's his response. I, I did obey the voice of the Lord. And I went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I've brought back Agag, the king of Amalek. And I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Look at me. I've destroyed them all. I even brought back the king as sort of the trophy to let everyone see. And then look at this, verse 21. Here it comes. But, <laughs> I obeyed, sort of, kind of. But, the people took some of the spoil sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Saul, why did you disobey? And Saul, at first, you know, he wants to paint this good picture of himself. And finally, in verse 21, he tells us why he disobeyed. And the first excuse he gives, it wasn't my fault, right? <laughs> it's not my fault. It's, it's the people the people, I, I, I need to blame the people. I mean, this is as old as, old as the Garden of Eden, right? when, when Adam and Eve sinned, do you remember that? Like God shows up in the garden and is like, Adam, why did you do this? And he's like, it's the wife that you gave me. It's always everyone else's fault. I'm never taking responsibility. It's the people in the circumstance. 
You know, it's, it's funny for us as people, we, we, try to, um, we try to make excuses by our own behavior. Um, really, our tendency sometimes is, is to blame people. We, it's like as if, if God had known better and he just gave me the right environment, I could have thrived. It's the environment's fault and the people around me, it's their fault. It not, has nothing to do with me, God. It's, it's everyone else. If everyone would just do what I want them to do, then life would be perfect. But, you know, I think it's important to remind ourselves, you know, our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, had paradise. And even in the perfect circumstance, in the perfect environment, they still didn't walk with God. Is it really the people? I think Saul is using this as, as an excuse to, to blind his own failure, failures in his character. You know, I think, yes, environments aren't always easy. Yes, making the right friends um, can help. Certainly us make wiser decisions as, as people. But I think blaming others really stops us from addressing our own faults and living the kind of life that God calls us to live. I mean, could you imagine making that excuse before God face-to-face one day? I know Saul's doing it here before people. It's not my fault. It's the people's fault. But can you imagine meeting God face-to-face one day and saying that to him? God, the reason I didn't live for the purpose for which you created me and the, and the reason for my design in this world, it was just too hard. The people around me, right? They were just difficult. I, I can imagine, you know, if you just think about that for a minute, people are going to be people no matter where you go in life. Just because you decide, you know, I'm not going to follow God because people make it hard. Does that automatically mean that people are just going to make it easy for you wherever you go? I mean, people are going to be people no matter what, wherever you go. I mean, could, you, could you imagine God's response to that? Like, if we were to say, God, you know, I wanted to live for you, but it was the people, God. The people just made it too hard. I just didn't, I couldn't do it anymore because the people. And Jesus is saying, are you, are you kidding me? Like, did you read my word? Like Jesus gave his entire life and to the point of death at the hands of people so that we could find life in him. He's like, of course I knew that that's, that's how people are. That's the reason I came. I came to rescue people because people are still important. They're made in my image. I get like, have you ever read Philippians chapter two? Though being in the form of God, he makes himself a servant and, and willingly dies on the cross. And of course he knows life isn't easy. Of course he knows uh, people can be difficult, but that, that isn't the reason that we do or don't follow God. Circumstances always change. Like sometimes life is easy and sometimes life is hard, but we don't follow Jesus because life is easier, life is hard. We follow Jesus because it's true and it's life transforming. And so Saul gives this first excuse. Well, God, it, it's, it's not my fault. It's, it's the people, Right? Then he gives reason to. He disobeyed. Ready? He says this. Um, but the, the people took some of the spoil. And then he says, the, the sheep and the oxen, the choice of the things devoted to destruction. Look, God, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. That's not like we're totally bad. We're still a good person. That's what he's saying, Right? I mean, God, yeah, of course I didn't give you everything that you wanted. But I gave you something. Be happy with something, God. And we're, yeah, we took the animals, but doesn't God know that we're going to give it all back to him? You know, uh, I didn't tell you this, but one of the 
reasons I think God says this about the Amalekites when he says to Saul, Saul, go into the land and destroy the Amalekites and take nothing. The reason God says this is because I think God wants to use this moment as to set himself apart from all the other gods and people in this area. And what I mean is uh, during this time period and really any time period after this, when people go to war, there's some profiteering from war. You go to war and you calculate the cost and also the reward, right? And you can go to war and you can make profit from this. And so during Saul's day, people would go into battle and they would go into battle sometimes simply because they could conquer another group's food resources or land or they could make people slaves. And so they would go in war against people in order to get those things. They, they, they would even entice their own people, their army that way. Look, we're a stronger army. We can dominate them. Think about how rich you're going to get. And so groups would go into battle. But could you imagine if, if Israel went into the battle and this gets spread among the land. Israel came in and destroyed the Amalekites. Oh man, Amalekites had a lot of stuff. They were always attacking people. How much did Israel get? Nothing. Israel didn't take anything. Could you imagine the people around? They'd say, what are you talking about? Then why did they even go to war? What did they want? They just simply wanted to declare the goodness of God and his holiness in this world. They took nothing. All that they said is they just want to walk with the Lord. And that would have been an incredible message. But Saul takes stuff. And he tries to cover up that sin by talking about how good he is. Right? I, I'm still a religious person. Doesn't God know that we're, we're going to still use this and we're going to honor him and we're going to make God happy by doing these things. I, I'm good, right? And the, the problem with talking about our goodness in comparison to other people is as long as you're comparing yourself to other people, you're always going to look good in some, some way. I heard a story once of a, a mob boss whose brother had died and uh, his brother was sort of his right man, right hand man. And a lot of the things that went on as, as he led as a mob boss and, when his brother passed, he went to a minister and he said, look, you're going to do my brother's funeral and you're going to tell people my brother was a saint and if you don't, I'm going to kill you. And so the minister, um, not wanting to be killed, but to still be honest, he, he does the funeral and he gets up and he says, you know, this guy that we're burying today was the worst person I have known in this world, the worst person I've, I have ever done a funeral for. Uh, he, he was despicable in things he did. He, he took advantage of people. He even killed people. He was an awful individual. But compared to his brother, he's a saint. <laughs> you know, as long as we're comparing ourselves to each other, we can always find someone else that we think that we're better than. But the problem with this religious thinking is that our comparison is not to other people. Our comparison is to a holy God. And, and Saul's using this moment to sort of pacify as if he's helping God out, right? Um, we're, we're, doesn't God know, he's saying, doesn't God know that we're going to offer this as a sacrifice? I mean, can't God be happy? It's like, it's like God needs him to, to sort of give him these things. It's like, it's like God, God this morning as we gather the church, as if we're, if we're to think like Saul in this religious, I'm a good boy mentality or I'm a good girl mentality, as if to think we're doing God a favor to show up. Like God was sitting in heaven today like, man, 
I really need someone to tell me how important I am. <laughs> like, if, they, if that person doesn't get to church, I'm just, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. <laughs> like, or God's saying, I, I'm just, there's something I really want to do. I'm a little bit short. If, I, if someone, just one more dollar. I'm just, somebody, can somebody help me out? Just one more dollar and I can get, like, that, this is how Saul's treating this moment. As if, doesn't God know we're going to tip him? God will get his little bit. And we're still good people. We're, I mean, we didn't follow God completely. But you know, religious way of thinking uh, has us often consider this as people where we think the whole point of Christianity is, um, you know, I did good things. Isn't God happy? Or I avoided bad things. I didn't do bad, bad things that other people do. Doesn't that satisfy God? But, but that's not the point of Christianity. It's not about living your life about doing good or not doing. Do you, do you realize an atheist can do that every day without acknowledging God? They can do the same thing that a Christian does in behavior. They can do good and not do bad. Sometimes they can even do it better than people, some people that call themselves Christians. And, and Samuel helps Saul see, look, this isn't the point. In verse 22, if you look at it, this is how Samuel responds to, to Saul in this. Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, I told uh, uh, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of the rams. And here's what Samuel's saying. In Israel's day, what you do is connected to what you believe. Now, I think that's true for us today, but I think sometimes we deceive ourselves today. But very much in Israel's day, what you do is connected to what you believe. Um, and I would say for us like this, guys, how you, how you behave um, demonstrates what you really believe. Now, people can give lip service to God all day long, but, but the demonstration of whether or not you're really pursuing Christ or you know Christ is seeing how you, how you behave. 1 John 4.20, right? I, just, I quoted that to us a little bit ago. If you say you love God and hate your brother's love, God is not in you. meaning what you truly believe you obey. And, and that's, this is what Samuel's saying to Saul. is like, if, if you really think that you care about the Lord in your life, like, then you would follow the Lord. I mean, Samuel said the same thing to Saul in, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, right? God is pursuing someone after his own heart. And so what he's saying, what is he saying? That what God is primarily interested in is your relationship to him. And if you truly cared about the Lord, you wouldn't simply look at your relationship to God as if you were just tipping him to sort of satisfy God. What you're really saying in that is that you ultimately care more about yourself. But what God is more interested in isn't simply an empty act of burnt sacrifices. What God is interested in is you. And when God gets your heart, he changes your life and we walk in obedience to that. But what God wants more than anything this morning Saul, it's you. And so Saul tries to do this, this, this blame game of, of pointing to people. He, he tries to show that, look, he's still a good person, but in comparison to the Lord, no, he's not holy. And what God is interested in is, is his heart. And this is what Samuel's trying to wake Saul up to. And, and when you get to verse 24, you can say, oh, look, you know, Saul 
Saul repented. Look, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the commandment of the Lord and, and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. We can look at that and be like, oh, yeah. Saul's doing what, what God would want. He's turning his heart to, to the Lord. And, and here's what I don't want us to, to fall into the trap of. Like, I realize this is a narrative story and it's saying Saul is, is begging for forgiveness here. Um, but just because it's a narrative story, it doesn't mean everything that's happening in that story is godly. And what I mean is this, there is a difference in what scripture talks about in being uh, worldly sorrow and genuine repentance. Uh, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it talks about this idea of worldly sorrow and genuine repentance. And uh, let me tell you the difference. Worldly sorrow tends to be one where you feel bad, not, not because you're agreeing with God, but you feel bad because you got caught. And you don't like what you're going to lose. And this is exactly what Saul demonstrates here. Remember verse 12? Uh, Samuel goes looking for Saul. He's like, where is he? Oh, he's on Mount Carmel. What's he doing? Oh, he's building a statue to himself. <laughs> like, how conceited is that? <laughs> he show up to my house and on my front lawn. I'm like, look how great I am, guys. Look at the statue I have built of myself. Tell me how wonderful I am. This is, this is what uh, Saul does. And, and then when you look further in, in scripture, you, you, you see in verse 17, uh, Saul says about Samuel that he thought he was, he, he was humble in his own eyes, right? Like he thinks he's less in his own eyes, not necessarily in the eyes of the Lord, but in himself. When he, back before he was king, he was humble in his own eyes. And then when you look in, in the same passage of scripture, verse 20, 26 and 27, you, you see Saul's response um, to what Samuel says. But Samuel said to Saul, I will, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized him by the edge of his robe and tore it. And so what Saul is showing here is what he's really interested in. So he grabs, he grabs Samuel's robe and he tears it because what Saul primarily wants is the fame of being king. He's not going to just accept what God says because he's not pursuing God with his life. This is not genuine repentance. It's worldly guilt. It's like this for us as people. Uh, when, when things happen to us that we don't like, we feel bad for, we get caught over, we feel guilty. Not because it violates against God, because we're embarrassed it got found out. What the Bible's teaching us is genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is about agreeing with God more than anything else. You're right, God. You're right. I've been walking a path um, that's not about you. It's, it's masked in you to look a certain way. But God, really, it's about me. And God, I want to let it go and just pursue you. What inevitably happens for Samuel is he dies. Like if you go on and continue reading the story all the way into 1 Samuel, he clings to the idea of being a king so much, even though God told him he didn't want him to be king anymore, that, that he, it leads him to his death. Now I realize we're probably not going to be kings and queens here, maybe of your own home. But the same thing's true with us, guys, that there are certain things we know that God says to us, look, Partial obedience is not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in your heart and your heart would be fully dedicated to me. And then we say to God, God, you know, at least I'm giving you the ram. At least I'm making the sacrifice. And then we cling to the things that lead to death rather than trust in the one who his life. So how do we avoid this? How do we avoid this story being our story? But rather, we see the, the beauty of Jesus being made known in our lives. Well, verse 17 actually gave you the answer. Verse 17, 18, 19, it really is the, the faithful response. And this, this section is when 
um, Samuel came to Saul and he says, Saul, why do I hear these sheep bleeding? Why do I hear this noise of animals in the background if God told you not to bring any of them with you? And, and he says, do you want to know what God says about this? And Samuel makes his excuses starting in verse 20, 21, 22. Um, or excuse me, Saul makes his excuses, but, but he gives us the answer to the healthy, healthy relationship with the Lord here in verse 17. And Samuel said, this is what God told to Saul. Is not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission to go. And the Lord anointed you, excuse me, and, and the Lord anointed you a king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go. So what's he saying? Well, what he's saying is it's important if you want to walk with the Lord in a healthy way, one is to recognize who you were before you came to know the Lord. Without God, who are you? How could you possibly find worth in this world apart from your creator? You could make it up, I guess, for a little while, but at some point in your life, living that way, you're going to get depressed over the lack of value that you find in yourself. And, and Saul reminds Samuel, look, do you remember who you were apart from God? All of us in sin. And we can try to mask ourselves in religion. We can try to blame others for it. We can build idols to ourselves to try to make ourselves feel great. But at the end of the day, who are you without the Lord? He's the one that made you and gives you value. Who are you without the Lord? And, and then he goes and says to him this, it wasn't the Lord that anointed you king over Israel? Meaning, why did you not just walk in the identity that God gave you? He anointed you king over Israel. And this word anointing is very important because I said to us last week, um, it's in 1 Samuel that the word anointing is used for the first time related to a king. Uh, in Hannah's prayer was the first time it was used in chapter two and talking about a king that a king would be anointed. And now Saul's anointed as a king. But here's what's important, guys. When you look at this word anointing, this word anointing comes from uh, sheep and, and shepherds. That's where Israel gets it from. You, you see them practicing anointing on people in their, throughout their history, but it starts with sheep and shepherds. And shepherds would anoint the heads of sheep in order to protect their sheep. Like what happened when, with a shepherd is um, sheep would oftentimes find bugs that would jump on them and they would burrow in the wool. And sometimes they would land on their face. And when they would burrow in, sometimes they could go in their ear. And when they would go in their ear, it would drive the sheep mad and eventually kill the sheep. And so a shepherd would anoint the sheep to bless the sheep, to protect the sheep, and to empower the sheep. It gave the sheep uh, a position of, of importance. And Israel started practicing this anointing on their, their leaders to, to demonstrate the same thing with God. They would anoint their prophets and their priests and their kings to show God's blessing and, and God's protection and God's empowerment. And when you get to the New Testament, here's what you find. In, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 20 and 27, and 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, that God describes all of his people as anointed If you belong to Jesus, you've been anointed by the power of God's spirit. And what that means is God's blessing, God's protection, God's empowerment on you to do what he called you to. That's what he says in verse 18. Now go on the mission God's called you to. Live for that glory. 
God has loved you. And so let me, let me ask you the question then. So, so the question when you look at a passage like this is just to simply ask, and I hope Saul would have done the same thing in reflection here. I don't think he did, but to ask the question, why would God love you? Why would God love you? And you can respond and say, look, um, God, God loves me um, because of the things I do. I, I've given him sheep. Or, or God loves me um, because I'm better than other people. What happens on the days you're not? Or what happens when you don't have the kind of things to give to the Lord? And sometimes in your life, you might have this happen in a relationship where someone comes to you, maybe your spouse, and they say, why do you love me? Why do you love me? And now you're put on the spot. You're like, oh, no. Oh, and you start to make the list, right? I love you because you're a good provider. I love you because of the way that you take care of our family. I love you because, and you give these reasons. But what happens? What happens when that person's no longer able to do those things? So here's what you communicate by saying to someone, I love you because of what you do for me. On the day that they are not able to do that anymore, are you now communicating to them that your love stops because the only reason that you were loving them is because they did that in the first place? I love what scripture says about the Lord in 1 John 4, 8. God is love. God is love. It's sort of to answer the question this way. God, why do you love me? And his response is not because of what you do. His response is better than that. His response is because of who he is. He loves because his being is love. It's not about what you do or don't do. It's about what he's done for you. And that invitation to belong to him. So he asked the question, God, why would you love me? Or God, why would you love Saul? The answer has nothing to do with Saul. The answer has to do with the grace and mercy of God. And the question then for us is, why would we ever leave that? Why would we ever leave that? Why would we not embrace the forgiveness and goodness of Jesus in the way that he has given his life for us and pursue that rather than the things of this world? And the answer is, because of the deception we believe in our own lives. We buy into the lie that the things around us make us significant. But the reality is it always belongs to Christ. And if we let go of those things, what we find is life. But if we cling to those things, what we find is death. And the question then becomes in verse 19, then why not obey the Lord? Why not obey the Lord? Because if you're, if you're here today and you understand the goodness and grace of Christ that's been made known in your life, let me just say this. We all start our journey with God like Saul where apart from the Lord, we, we are nothing. The reason we have anything is because of him. And we need him. We need to lay down the facade of blaming people. We need to lay down the f- facade of religion to make us look good. We need to lay down the idols of life and just simply say, Jesus, give me the value in you. Jesus is enough. He covers our sin. He forgives us the cross and he provides us his grace. If we would by faith trust in him. And all the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.